Do not say there are yet four months, and then comes the harvest. Behold, I say to you, lift up your eyes and look on the fields, that they are white for harvest. Already he who reaps is receiving wages and is gathering fruit for life eternal, that he who sows and he who reaps may rejoice together. For in this case, the saying is true, one sows and another reaps. I have sent you to reap that for which you have not labored, others have labored, and you've entered into their labor. Our Father, we're always amazed at the wonder of the way in which you bring people to yourself. You said, for no one can come to the Father unless you first draw him. Thank you for the Holy Spirit's work of convicting us of sin, righteousness, and judgment. And we pray in this week that is before us that we would be sensitive to people around us, that we would care about their souls as someone once cared for ours and gave us the good news. Thank you for the people that you bring online every week from across our country and even foreign countries and those that you bring into these auditoriums. May the Spirit of God work in their hearts and in our hearts. May you speak, O Lord, that we might see Christ in the light of his truth. Help me today. I need your anointing. I pray the Spirit's pleasure would be upon me as I speak of him. In all the services today, we ask it in Jesus' holy name. Amen. I want to invite you to take your Bibles this morning and turn to the Gospel of John chapter 15. If you are a visitor to this church, we believe that the Bible was authored by God himself, not just the concepts, but the very words. We study the Bible expositionally, verse by verse, word by word, because Jesus said, down to the smallest jot and tittle, the Scripture is inspired. And when you begin to study the Bible in that fashion, it just comes alive. You begin to see that no man could have ever written this book apart from the divine inspiration of God's Spirit. Now, if you're here for the first time, we finished a verse-by-verse exposition of the book of James, and before fall ends, God willing, we hope to begin a new book in the Old Testament. But with that said, there's a number of issues you've asked me about, you've written me about, or I've just felt a burden to preach on. And so right now, we are in a series on evangelism. We began by speaking of the topic of sharing Christ courageously. And of course, we looked at Acts 4, the apostles and the persecution they face. And my friends, persecution is growing around the world, and it is now meeting the Western Hemisphere. And so we need to be courageous. Then we spoke last time about sharing Christ consistently. And we looked at Philip, the evangelist, and how he was consistent, whether it was a large crowd or with a single individual. This morning, we want to speak about sharing Christ in the Spirit. Jesus said, Behold, I am sending forth the promise of my Father upon you. And then he said, But you are to stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. Likewise, in Acts 1-4, Luke recorded, Gathering them together, he committed them not to leave Jerusalem, but to wait for what the Father had promised, which he said, You've heard of from me. And then he says in verse 8, But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be my witnesses." Repeatedly in Scripture, being filled with the Spirit is linked to personal evangelism because people who are Spirit-filled people are folks who share their faith. They care about the things that Christ cares about. Follow me and I will make you fishers of men, Jesus promised. 
And if we're not fishing for men, we're really not following him, and so we're not really, in the truest sense, consistently filled with the Spirit. Now, we're going to look at a passage of Scripture that is very familiar, and sometimes the wonder of it is lost because it is so familiar. But I hope it will shock you, I hope it will uh, shake you this morning, that you will look at it with fresh eyes. Now, here in John 15, just to set the context, John 13, if you remember, they were in the upper room. Uh, Jesus celebrated the Passover that night, but this Passover that was going to be literally enacted on Good Friday, as we call it, was a fulfillment of all the Passovers of centuries before. And then, of course, they uh, are on their way to the Garden of Gethsemane. When you reach John chapter uh, 15, you discover at the end of 14, when the discourse, we call it the upper room discourse, or the upper room sermon, you could call it, I suppose, when that is finished, uh, after the Lord's table is instituted, they sing a hymn. And so very often uh, today in churches across the world, sometimes here at the end of the Lord's Supper, we sing a hymn because we have a biblical mandate or a real picture of that. And, of course, he says at the end of 14, Arise, let us go from here. And when you see where they leave and where they're headed to the Garden of Gethsemane, which is at the base of the Mount of Olives, between those two points, there's a vineyard. In fact, there's remains of that vineyard to this very day when you go to Israel. And it's in the midst of this vineyard that the Lord teaches us how to be filled with the Spirit. And unless we're filled with the Spirit, we will not be successful in this great commission that Christ has given to us. Let's begin by reading our text, John 15. I know people come here for the first time. They don't bring a Bible because they've never needed one before in a church. This is a Bible-believing, Bible-teaching church. I'm not here to share my opinion. But if you don't have one, and many people come here and they say, the only Bible I have is a family Bible at home, and that's a little too big to bring. I agree. Come tonight to meet the pastor, or Thursday night. We haven't live-streamed in the truest, livest way, meet the pastor in a while, but we will live-stream it as well on Thursday night for those who are listening this morning. John 15, I hope you have found it. Jesus said, I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. Every branch that bears fruit, he prunes it so that it may bear more fruit. You are already clean because of the word which I have spoken to you. Abide in me, and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, so neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me, and I in him, he bears much fruit, for apart from me you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away as a branch and dries up, and they gather them and cast them into the fire, and they're burned. If you abide in me, and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. My Father is glorified by this that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. Just as the Father has loved me, I have also loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be made full. Now, many times people call this section of Scripture the secrets of the vine. It's no secret at all. 
God wants you to apprehend, to comprehend, and to respond to the clear truths. And there are three principles that are underscored in this section. There's a note-taking outline. If you're new, place online for you to print it out. The first principle is the vine in its background. Let's talk about the origin of this imagery as we think about the vine and its background. Jesus states here in verse 1, I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. The grapevine was a common sight in Israel. Vineyards were seemingly everywhere. It became the national symbol, just like the palmetto tree in this state is the symbol for our state of South Carolina. It was engraved on the temple. They put it on early coins. And so it's not surprising that throughout the Old Testament, in the physical land of Israel, that God would use a vine or a vineyard, both, to picture his people Israel. And so when Jesus said, I am the true vine, it needs to be understood in light of what is revealed in the Old Testament. Now, it's rather interesting when you read the vine vineyard passages in the Tanakh or the Old Testament, this figure is used to describe Israel almost always in the context of judgment because of their disobedience. Uh, In Jeremiah 2.21, the prophet said, God speaking, yet I planted you a choice vine, a completely faithful seed. How then have you turned yourself before me into the degenerate shoots of a foreign vine? Jeremiah is writing in a day where the people of Israel were guilty of idolatry. And so to contrast the degenerate vine of Israel, Jesus says, I am the true vine. And of course, you will remember Uh, There's a parable that's recorded in both Matthew and in Mark. He gave it on Wednesday. This text we're reading took place on Thursday. Let me refresh your mind. We read it about a month ago, Matthew 21. He said, listen to another parable. There was a landowner who planted a vineyard and put a wall around it and dug a wine press in it and built a tower and rented it out to vine growers and went on a journey. When the harvest time approached... He sent his slaves to the vine growers to receive his produce. The vine growers took his slaves and beat one and killed another and stoned a third. Again, he sent another group of slaves larger than the first, and they did the same thing to them. But afterward, he sent his son to them, saying, They will respect my son. But when the vine growers saw the son, they said among themselves, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him and seize his inheritance. And they took him. And threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. Therefore, when the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those vine growers? Again, this happened on Wednesday, the day before. This is on Thursday night where he's in this vineyard describing himself as the true vine. So he takes this parable of the vineyard, again, used all the way through the Old Testament of Israel, and he applies it to the nation. Therefore, I say to you, The kingdom of God will be taken away from you and be given to a nation producing the fruit of it. When the chief priests and the Pharisees heard his parables, they understood that he was speaking about them. When they sought to seize him, they feared the multitudes because they held him, Jesus that is, to be a prophet. Now, this is the background against which Jesus says, I am the true vine. Israel was the vine of God. He gently carried her along as he established a nation through Israel. He ultimately planted them in the promised land. 
He entrusted to them the word of God. They were the keepers of Scripture. They were the appointed vine dressers who were to take that word and teach it to the people. But when the prophets of God came along, they treated them sorely bad, so bad, they ill-treated them, and ultimately, when the prophet, the prophet that Moses spoke of in Deuteronomy came, the Son of God Himself, they murdered Him. And so, what did it bring? Only a visitation of wrath. So, since Israel was the custodian of the Scripture, God said for a period of time, He would remove the privileges of this promised kingdom. He's not done with Israel. Those who are amillennial are grossly misinformed. God is going to complete human history through the people of Israel. He is setting the stage. He has brought Israel back into the land just as He said He would do at the end of time before the second coming. They've grown from 20,000 to nearly 7 million Jews from over 100 nations of the world in Israel today. And not all of them will come back. There's only 12.5 million Jews on the planet. God is setting the stage. He's laid aside Israel for a period of time. He is now using the church, the true church. There's the professing church, as we'll see. But there's the true church made up of every tribe, tongue, and nation. And there will come a time when God will then even restore Israel. So it's in that context, Jesus said, I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. The Father is the vine dresser. He's the gardener, so to speak. He's the one who cultivates. He's the one who prunes. He's the one who works in your life. That's the vine in the background, all right? You with me? Let's go to point number two on your outline, the vine and its branches, the vine and its branches. We're told now in verse 2, Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away, and every branch that bears fruit, he prunes it so that it may bear more fruit. So Jesus tells us the role of the Father as the vine dresser is twofold. First, he says he takes away every branch that does not bear fruit. The Father prunes out the dead wood, the living fruit that needs to blossom and be full can't achieve that goal if there's a lot of dead wood in the vineyard. And even suckers, as we'll see, that rob the life and vitality that God wants to bring into the grape. And so God is the divine uh, vine dresser, is pruning and accomplishing specific purposes. Now, he begins this verse by saying, every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. Now, what precisely is he referring to? There's a lot of discussion over this one verse of Scripture. Some say, well, this is an illustration of Israel being cast off. Well, contextually, that's not true because these are people that didn't even embrace Jesus. He came to His own, and His own received Him not, John recorded in the first chapter. Jews, as believers, have always been the exception. They've always been a remnant for the last 2,000 years. Some would say, well, these are folks who have placed their faith in the Lord Jesus, but then God removed them. They lost their salvation. No, 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 no. That's not even consistent with what John has recorded in his gospel, much less the rest of the Scripture. Let Scripture interpret Scripture. Turn back a few pages to John chapter 6. Go to John chapter 6 for just a moment. This is one of a dozen passages in the Gospel of John that affirms our eternal security. 
If you look at John 6 and verse 37, Jesus said, all that the Father gives me will come to me. Circle that word all, would you? All that the Father gives me will come to me, and the one who comes to me I will certainly not cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. This is the will of him, speaking of the Father, this is the will of the Father who sent me, that of all, circle the word all, that of all he has given me, I lose nothing, underline that word nothing, but raise it up on the last day, for this is the will of my Father, that everyone, circle the word everyone, that everyone who beholds the Son and believes in him may have eternal life, and I myself will raise him up on the last day. This is an irrefutable promise of all who put their faith in Jesus. Jesus said, I came not to do my will, but to do the will of the Father. And the will of the Father is that every single one who looks or beholds the Son absolutely will be raised up on the last day. So for Jesus not to raise someone up who's come to faith on the last day would be to disobey the Father. But He didn't come to disobey the Father. He came to do the Father's will. So to say that you can lose your salvation is some take John 15, 2 to teach. One is they're saying Jesus is a liar, if they think about it. They're saying Jesus is a liar. I hope you're not wanting to call Jesus a liar. Not only are you calling him a liar, you're equally calling him as a sinner because now he is disobeying the Father's will for his life. Not only are you calling him a liar and a sinner, you're calling him weak, that he's incapable of doing that which the Father has commissioned him to do. Now, most people who deny the biblical doctrine of eternal security haven't really thought it through. They wouldn't want to say, well, he's a liar, he's a sinner, he's weak. But in essence, that is precisely by implication what they are teaching. So our Lord makes an unequivocal promise that every single one from start to finish will be secured by him. Now, back here in John 15, when I think the problem comes is that sometimes we take this phrase, in me, and we equate it with the Apostle Paul's words, in Christ. And of course, Jesus is using the metaphor of the vine to teach that every person who professes to be his disciple, who claims to be a branch, is not necessarily a branch. Some may appear to be a Christian, but they're not really a true Christian. So if we let Scripture interpret Scripture, the meaning of every branch in me that does not bear fruit is taken away, it becomes very, very clear. Take the parable of the lamp, for instance. It's found in Luke chapter 8. You might want to put Luke 8, 18 out in the margin. There Jesus taught that there were people who heard the gospel, people who outwardly responded to the gospel, but not in a genuine faith. There are people, sometimes you see the word believe in the Bible, and it's not always in reference to genuine belief. Now, whenever you see the word believe accompanied with the preposition in or into, it's always 100% of the time, without exception, describing real conversion. But when the word believe is alone, sometimes it can refer just to an intellectual knowledge. The demons believe, quote-unquote. And tremble. But in Luke 8, 18, after he tells the parable, he applies it. Therefore, take care how you listen, for, what it, for whoever has, to him shall more be given. And whoever does not have, even what he 
seems to have or thinks he has shall be taken away from him. There are some people who think they have salvation. They outwardly appear to have salvation, but there's no evident fruit of salvation. Put out in the margin as well, Romans 11, 16 to 24. I'll let you go home and read that whole section for the sake of time. There, the Lord compares Israel to an olive tree, and because of their unbelief, He describes how He'll break off branches of the olive tree and graft in Gentiles who will genuinely and truly believe. And so, again, contextually, there are people who outwardly appear to be believers, and earlier this night, there was one at the table with him. His name was Judas. Judas said he was a Christian. He confessed that he was a Christian, but he was not a genuine Christian. And in the truest sense, he didn't bear true fruit. And fruit is an infallible mark of a genuine believer. For instance, in John 14, he said earlier that night, John 14, verse 20, he who has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. And he who loves me shall be loved by my Father, and I will love him and disclose myself to him. A mark that you know Christ, that you've entered into a personal relationship with the living God, is that you love him, that is, you obey him. Again, in verse 23 of the same chapter, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our abode with him. Likewise, plainly on the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus made this at the end of that great sermon. Even so, every good tree bears good fruit, but the bad tree bears bad fruit. How many good trees bear good fruit? Every tree. There's no such thing as a good tree bearing bad fruit. Now, he's not talking about perfection here, that every good tree never sins. He's talking about nature, that if the nature of a tree is healthy, it's going to bear good fruit, period. If the nature of the tree is bad, you can prune it all you want, you can fertilize it all you want, but it's not going to produce good fruit. So Jesus repeats himself in verses 19 and 20 of Matthew 7, every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire, so then you will know them by their fruits. The principle in the New Testament is every true child of God bears real fruit. Now, sometimes it's not all that impressive. There's some lingering, somewhat less than fresh grapes. Some look like raisins. <laughs> but there's real fruit if someone is truly, genuinely saved. It's an impossibility for you to confess Jesus and not to show evidence. You either bear fruit or you are dead wood. There's really not much in between. Now, you'll notice when we come down to verse 6 that once the branch is removed, we'll look at it in a moment, it is burned. And by the way, those who say you can lose your salvation, verse 6 says a whole lot more than they want it to say because it's burned. It doesn't have another chance. It's burned. You're not born again, then unborn again, then born again again, and then unborn again again, and then born again again again. No, you're saved once. You are a temple of the Holy Spirit who lives in you forever, and forever means forever. So the Father's role is as the heavenly vine dresser, and it's expressed in two principal ways. First, to cut every branch that does not bear fruit, and we'll see again their end in a moment. But second, he prunes. 
is noted in the margin. If you have the New American Standard with the marginal notes, sometimes it will give you a more literal rendering. It may sound a little archaic, but it says out in the margin, he cleanses every branch that does bear fruit. Why? So it can be more fruitful. And every branch that bears fruit, he prunes it that it may bear more fruit. So pruning in a vineyard is not optional. It's imperative. Fruitfulness is imperative. That's the whole reason a vineyard exists. And so pruning is done so that unproductive growth is removed and maximum fruitfulness is achieved. My father is the vine dresser. And so the branch that does not bear fruit, he prunes. And God has many creative ways of pruning us. Uh, Let me just say parenthetically here too. It's the father who is the vine dresser. We don't need to be self-appointed vine dressers. We don't need to play the role of God, the Holy Spirit. God's the one who is the vine dresser. Now, God may use you in the pruning process as you share the Word of God, and it brings conviction. But let the Holy Spirit be the Holy Spirit. Don't play the role of the Holy Spirit. But just like a vine dresser knows precisely where to put the knife, the exact angle in which to cut the, the, the wood or the sucker, even so, God knows precisely how it is that we need to be pruned. And He does it for our good, ultimately, that He might be glorified. It's not by accident. In this portion of Scripture, fruit is mentioned eight times. I have it circled three times in verse uh, 2, twice here in verse 4, once in verses 5, verses 8, and then again in verse 16. God is committed to you because He loves you, as Jesus is going to emphasize here before this whole section is completed. He's committed to shaping the Lord Jesus Christ in you. And pruning, well, it can be painful, but the outcome is great. So how does the Father prune us? Well, He certainly convicts us or cleanses us. Um, Sometimes, according to Hebrews 12 or uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 11, He gives us a divine spanking. Those whom the Lord loves, He disciplines. You don't discipline the next-door neighbor's children, only your own. So it is with the Heavenly Father. He doesn't discipline the pagan. He only disciplines the one who's born again. And so if someone can live in sin and not experience divine discipline, it just means their profession is empty. It's not real. He might discipline us physically, 1 Corinthians 11.30. He might discipline us financially. He might discipline us relationally. But He knows how to ring your bell. He knows how to get our attention. Why? Because He wants us to be mature and complete, lacking in nothing. Now, James tells us that when we're in the pruning process, we need to consider it all joy. We need to count it joy. So we can moan and groan and bellyache when we're under the divine knife, but we're missing what God wants to do. And sometimes He has to do it all over again. That's the point of James 1. Now, look at verse 3, if you will. You are already clean because of the word which I have spoken to you. You are already clean. You could write over that. You are already saved because that's the essence of what He is saying. On two occasions in the Gospel of John, the Lord uses the word clean in order to underscore those who are saved. For instance, not an hour or so before, in John chapter 13, 
You might want to put it in the margin. He who is bathed needs only to wash his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not all of you. And then he says in verse 11, for he knew the one who was betraying him. For this reason, he said, you are not all clean. Once you've been saved, you have been clean. Now, one of the lessons of foot washing is not just that we need to be servants, though we do, but there was a much deeper lesson, if you know the passage, that Jesus said they wouldn't get that night, but they would get hereafter, later on. And the point was, is that once you're saved, you are forever clean, but as you walk through this world, sometimes your feet get dirty. He who is bathed needs only to wash his feet. But there was someone there that night who had never experienced salvation, and of course, it was Judas. Most of you know that. So Jesus said here in verse 3, you are already clean. Why? Because of the word which I have spoken to you. The Lord is reminding us that the word, the message, is what God uses to bring about salvation. Verse 3 is not speaking of sanctification. Verse 3 is speaking of justification. Sanctification is that process after you are born again, as God shapes you into the image and likeness of Christ. Justification is that moment where God judicially declares you righteous. You're redeemed from that day on forever a saint of God. Now, in the church I grew up in, only a select few achieve sainthood. But you can call me this morning Saint Brogy, because if I've been born again, God has called me a saint, because it's not earned. It is it is not merited, it is credited to you by grace. And so it's in the hearing and the believing of the Word that people are clean. That's always been God's method. Faith comes from hearing and hearing by the Word of God. It doesn't matter whatever age you live in, even before the first word of Scripture was given, and it was only through the Word. It may have come in a dream or a vision or in a direct encounter with God, but it was through the Word that men are made clean. And the degree to which you believe that is the degree to which you will use the Word to bring about conversion. Some Christians say, well, I just want to live my life in such a way that people will see my life and want to be saved. And St. Francis of Assisi made an absolutely stupid statement in that regards. I won't even quote him this morning. That somehow your life has power to convert. Don't preach a sermon, just live a life. That's sheer nonsense and folly. The instrumental means that the Spirit of God uses. For you've been born again not of perishable seed, but imperishable seed through the living and abiding Word of God. The Word that I have spoken to you. In the parable of the sower, Jesus describes a farmer who goes out and sows seed, and in the interpretation of the parable, he tells us that the seed is the Word of God. And again, even in the Old Testament, people who heard the Word through whatever means is what God used. Now, look at verse 4. So because they are clean, Jesus now says in verse 4 to these saved, "'Abide in me, and I in you.'" As the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, so neither can you unless you abide in me. So again, Jesus is speaking to those who are already clean, to those who are already saved, and he wants them to know now in terms of the sanctification process, the growth process, we need to abide in him and he in us. 
The word abide is used throughout the scripture to describe that process of remaining close to the Lord. And he wants us to understand that there needs to be a continual closeness, a continual dependence on the Lord. It's absolutely essential and indispensable to bearing fruit. There needs to be a moment-by-moment, situation-by-situation dependence on the vine. No branch has life in and of itself. The branch receives its life from the vine. A branch is lifeless, it's useless, it's fruitless, apart from the sap that the vine gives it. Jesus said, he's the vine, you and I are just branches. You never see a branch sweat and strain on its own to produce fruit. No, it relies on the vine. And the vine produces the sap that produces the fruit. So what precisely does it mean to abide? Well, the idea of abiding in Christ is synonymous in the New Testament with being filled with the Holy Spirit. He already spoke in John 14 about the promise of the new covenant. And he's going to uh, rehearse that again when he comes to John chapter 16. But walking in the power of the Holy Spirit, dependent upon Him, abandoned to Him is essential. Where you begin the day, you live the day, Lord, I cannot do this on my own. That unless you live your life in and through me, oh, I can be active, but I can't bear real fruit. And so you, you come to Jesus, not just for pardon, you come to Him for power. How did you come to Jesus for pardon? There was a point in your life, if you are saved, where you admitted that you weren't good enough and there's not a single work you've ever done that can help save you. And until you come to that point, you're not even calling yourself a sinner. You have no need of a Savior yet. But you came and you put your full weight in Jesus who died, was buried, and was raised, what the Bible calls the gospel, the power of God to save you. Well, Paul will write to the church at Colossus, Therefore, as you have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in Him. In the same way you received Him in that state of bankruptcy and brokenness, that's how we are to walk in Him, dependent upon Him. Look, I am overwhelmed every Sunday that I am called to stand behind this pulpit. And I know that my words are just meaningless. Lest the Spirit of God operates through me. And that's true in every aspect of life, whether you're changing diapers or cutting the grass, whatever you're doing, in total dependence on the Lord. Lord Jesus, I need you, because without you, I can do absolutely nothing. There's no real spiritual life, no real fruit. And spiritual fruit in this chapter, as we're going to see, has many different aspects, including, as this series has been underscoring, attempting to win people to Jesus Christ. The branch cannot produce life on its own. And so throughout Scripture, there's actually seven different figures that God uses to describe our relationship to the Lord Jesus. You know most of them, like, He is the head, we are the body. He is the chief shepherd, we are the sheep. He is the bridegroom, we are the bride. A member of the body cut off from the head, is dead. It needs the head for life, for direction. And a marriage, well, there's a new union. 
But with that said, it takes daily love and devotion for that communion to grow and to develop. And so it is, the Scripture would make a distinction between our union in Christ and our communion with Christ, and we'll see that as we walk through this passage. And the sooner we discover that we are but branches, the better we will relate to Him as the shepherd, as the bridegroom, and as the head. All right? That's the second point, the vine and its branches. Now let's go into the third point, the vine and its bounty. The vine and its bounty, if you're taking notes. Look now, if you will, at verse 5. Jesus now states, I'm the vine, you're the branches. He abides in me and I in him. He bears much fruit, for apart from me you can do nothing. He wants us to know the condition for fruitfulness. He who abides in me and I in him, he bears much fruit. So one of the key words in this portion of Scripture is this word abide. It's the same Greek word. It comes out every time in the New American Standard, not in all the translations in the English tongue, but the New American Standard is really the gold standard. And sometimes I think they, you know, they, they give way to maybe readability to be more literal, but when you study the Scripture verse by verse, word by word, it's really extremely helpful. Ten times in the first 11 verses, he underscores this word abide. So how do you abide? Well, number one, verses 9 and 10 indicate that you must obey. We'll come to that in a moment. You obey His Word, and you confess to Him the sin when you have not done that, because while nothing can sever your union, all kinds of things can sever your communion with Christ. If you'll notice in verse 4, this is a command to abide in Him. So while this abiding relationship is natural to the branch into the vine, it has to be cultivated in the life of the true believer. It's not automatic. It's predicated on different choices that you make. And once you've begun to cultivate that communion, more and more you don't want to go back to what the world has. You see how empty and how vain and how useless it is. But here is the main point. You cannot live the Christian life apart from abiding Him. Apart from Him, you can do nothing. Nothing? That's right. Nothing. Nothing of genuine, eternal value that produces God the Holy Spirit kind of fruit by which God is glorified. Now, it may look like fruit from a distance, but God just sees it as plastic. There's a lot of plastic fruit that goes around. I'm not talking here just about lost people who have no life, who profess one thing but not really saved. Sometimes as Christians, we can claim to be really spiritual, and we think we're really spiritual. When maybe in reality, if we look at this passage carefully and we let God take the, the pruner's knife and open us up, we may see we're not as spiritual as He wants us to be. Without Him, I can do nothing. With Him, I can do everything. Paul will say, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. But you cannot do those things that God has destined for you to walk in beforehand, as Ephesians 2.10 underscores, unless you are abiding in Him. Now, there's a progression here, and don't miss it. In verse 2, he goes from no fruit, fruit, more fruit, to verse 8, much fruit. So no fruit, fruit, more fruit in verse 5, much fruit in verse 8. Look at verse 6. 
If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away as a branch and dries up and they gather them and cast them into the fire and they are burned. Now, again, he's not talking about losing salvation. That's impossible. Jesus is describing people here who never had salvation. Put out in the margin, 1 John 2, 19, if they were of us, they would have remained with us, but the fact that they went out from us indicate they were never really of us to begin with. And so people do theology on experience. No, experience is not your authority. Sola Scriptura is. Experience must be put under the authority of Scripture. It's impossible for someone to lose salvation. Someone said, well, he was saved. Now he's a Mormon. Now he's a Hindu. Now he's a Buddhist. No, he was never saved to begin with. That's the point of Scripture. People who, again, are trying to be consistent with Scripture and know that the Bible and the church taught for 1,500 years without any exceptions, that once we're saved, we're always saved. And by the way, when Jacob Arminius came up with the view that you could lose your salvation, some people wanted him executed. They thought, man, this guy is just a false prophet. Well, I don't think he was a false prophet. I just think he was a little bit confused. So some wanting to be consistent said, well, he's not talking about uh, people losing their salvation. He's talking about people losing their reward. Well, I can appreciate that, but that's not clearly what the text is saying. Do you see the pronouns? You might want to circle them. The word anyone and the word he and the twice repeated word them and the word they. He's talking about people here. He's talking about people who, in the sight of God, are nothing more than worthless branches because they don't truly believe. Now, remember, the background for the vine goes back to the people of Israel. And people in Christ's day were outwardly religious, but they were inwardly deficient. Jesus said, they worship me with their lips, but their heart is far, far away. They boasted about being descendants of Abraham. And Jesus said, if you were really believers like Abraham, well, let me read it to you from John 8. They answered and said to him, Abraham is our father. Jesus said to them, if you are Abraham's children, do the deeds of Abraham. Likewise, John the Baptist described most of the Jewish people in his day as just outwardly religious. And so he said in Matthew 3 of the religious leaders, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Therefore, bring forth fruit in keeping with repentance. You need fruit that only genuine faith can bring. And do not suppose that you can say to yourselves, we have Abraham for our father. For I say to you that God is able from these stones to raise up children to Abraham. And the axe is already laid at the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Some Jewish people just thought that because they were descendants of Abraham, that meant they were going to heaven. There are people across America today, I've been baptized as a Christian. I've been confirmed as a Christian. I'm a member of a church somewhere. That means I'm going to heaven. Oh, no, 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 no. He makes it here and clear, clearly in verse 6 that if a person is not rightly related as shown through the evidence of bearing fruit, God casts them into the fire here at the end of verse 6, and they are burned. By the way, the prophet Ezekiel uses the same imagery. Put out next to verse 6, if you will, Ezekiel 15, 1 to 8. 
That would be a great text to go home and read, Ezekiel 15, 1 through 8. There God speaks to the prophet Ezekiel and he warns that if a vine failed to produce fruit, its wood was good for nothing but for fire. And because of the rebelliousness of the people living in the capital of Israel that really in one way reflected the whole nation, the capital of Israel, Jerusalem, by the way, it's God's eternal capital. Uh, Trump may have acknowledged it and moved the embassy there, which I'm very grateful that he did that. But ever before man acknowledged it as the capital, God said it was the capital. With that said, let me just read one verse from Ezekiel. He said in verse 6 of that chapter, Therefore, thus says the Lord, God... You'll notice, by the way, God is in all caps. So Elohim, Yahweh, kind of like when it's capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D... When you see capital G, capital G, O, capital D, that's Yahweh, God's covenant name. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, as the wood of the vine among the trees of the forest, which I have given to the fire for fuel, so I have given up the inhabitants of Jerusalem. Now, the people in Jesus' day knew this passage well. This was like, not quite like John 3.16 is to us, but understand, a very well-known passage of Scripture. And so Jesus is reminding us of the fate of those who produce no fruit. Now, please notice what the Lord is doing here. He's carefully distinguishing the severed branches from the attached branches. Judas was a severed branch. He was committed to the cause, but he wasn't committed to the Christ. He had an outwardly religious relationship, but he had never attached himself through genuine faith. And there are people like that who fill even evangelical churches. They're living in gross outward sin, and yet they say they're born again. There's no discipline. There's no sorrow. There's no grief. They've deceived themselves, but I come to church. I do this in His name, and I do that in His name. And Jesus will say, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice iniquity. Understand, you're not saved by producing fruit. Jesus is not teaching salvation by works and denying a theme he has underscored all the way through John's gospel that we're saved by grace alone through faith alone. But he is saying that if you are saved, you will produce fruit. And when there's no fruit, it just means there's no new life. Fire, that's the end of vine wood. I mean, once it's all dried up, it's useless. You can't build a house with vine wood. You can't make a piece of furniture. You can't make a kitchen utensil. You can't even make a hook on which to hang your hat. It's good for nothing but for kindling. And the point the Lord is making that just as dead branches in a vineyard are good for nothing but for the brush pile, so the person who professes to know Jesus, who claims to be attached to the vine, but who has no real fruit, he is ready for the fire and judgment of God. Now, that's important because sometimes I have to do a funeral and the person says, well, so-and-so made a profession of faith. And then they've lived in adultery for the last 20 years. Now, I'm not their judge. God is. But the New Testament would give very little assurance that that person is born again based on Galatians 5, Ephesians 5, 1 Corinthians 6. Very, very little assurance. 
And again, to emphasize, the Lord is not teaching here that a true believer can lose salvation. To teach that, again, would contradict what He has plainly said. And it's unwise to take a parable and to build a major doctrine on it. Typically, in any parable, there's one main truth, and the main truth He's underscoring here is their fruitful life. But just as an unfruitful branch is useless, so an unfruitful person, no matter what they may say, is destined for judgment. You say, well, how can I really tell if I am abiding? Is there some kind of special feeling? Well, clearly there are evidences that I am abiding. Now I'm talking here about a saved person who's attached. How do I know if I'm consistently abiding? What does it look like? Uh, Well, um, here's a, a slide that might be helpful, the way fruit is used in the New Testament. There's certainly the fruit of the Spirit. Uh, Paul delineates that in the book of Galatians, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. That's certainly one aspect of fruit that Scripture would interpret Scripture with. And certainly there's a fruit of introducing someone to Christ. Now, I recognize that God uses us in different ways. We read in the pastoral prayer this morning from John chapter 4 with the experience the disciples had in Samaria, and he said, you're, you're, you're raping today, but because of someone else who did the work before you. Many times when I'm privileged to introduce someone to Christ, I'm just entering into someone else's labor. They've been praying, they've been sharing, they've been witnessing, and I get to walk into the harvest. Sometimes you get to do both. And again, God uses us in different ways, but if you drop down to verse 16, Clearly, Jesus has this in mind. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go, circle that word, go and bear fruit, and that your fruit should remain, that whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he may give you. So one aspect of fruit in the New Testament is that of conversion. And people want to hide behind Galatians 5, I'll have the fruit of the Spirit, But many times they don't have the fruit of helping to bring someone into the kingdom. So fruit can refer to character, fruit can refer to uh, conversion, but it can also refer to good works. In Colossians 1 and verse 10, he speaks of the fruit of good works. In addition, Hebrews 13, fruit can be used to describe praise and thanksgiving. He speaks there of praise to God, that is, the fruit of the lips that give thanks to His name. Now, sometimes people try to rigidly separate praise from thanksgiving. The New Testament nor the Old Testament does neither. They're intertwined together. And so the believer who comes here, who's spirit-filled, you know what? They want to praise the Lord. (laughs) They like to sing. Can you imagine? They like to be with God's people. And, of course, we'll see more as we walk through here. There's a fruit of joy and the fruit of answered prayer. But let's read verse 7. Let's keep stepping through the text. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. Now, in verses 7 and 8, Jesus teaches the fruit of prayer in his name. Now, clearly, this is not an unconditional uh, promise that you can make any demand on God and He will automatically answer. It says here, you must abide in Him and His Word must abide in you. And when you're abiding in Christ and His Word is abiding in you, then the asking will match 
the teaching, the two will go together. And so a superficial commitment to the Holy Scripture will not yield a prayerful life. Very often I get letters, notes, emails, people come here, they say, this is for a church I've been in where the pastors have actually opened the Bible, and I'm growing, and I'm excited, and God's changing my life, and I want to study the Scripture. See, we're not talking about a superficial commitment. We're talking to digging into the Scripture. Go home and read Ephesians 5.18. The command is, be filled with the Spirit. And then there's a series of participles that flow out all the way into chapter 6 that give the evidence from the verb, be filled with the Spirit. And if you compare that with Colossians 3.16, a different command, let the Word of Christ richly dwell within you. There's the command, and then there's the identical set of participles that flow through the Scripture. There'll be a life of joy. There'll be a life of gratitude and thanksgiving. There'll be a life of mutual submission one onto another. The point is, is that the Spirit of Christ, the Spirit of truth, as He's called, our helper, doesn't work in a vacuum. He works in conjunction with the Word of God. Just as there are two parents in physical birth, there are two parents in spiritual birth. We're born again of the Spirit. We're born again of the Word. The Spirit of God uses the Word of God, even so in sanctification. You're to be filled with the Spirit, but you're filled with the Spirit in conjunction and in relation to the Word of God. And when those two things are true, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. I mean, that's an incredible promise. That's an astonishing pledge. But the key to getting what we want is wanting what He wants. And wanting what He wants comes from spending time digging, chewing, meditating on the Scripture. It's more than just memorizing a verse. You can have a quiet time, read a chapter of Scripture, and 10 minutes later, if your life depended on it, you couldn't remember anything from that chapter. We're talking about tearing in the Lord's presence, feeding on His Word, letting, letting it be turned over in your heart and mind over and over and over again. Then we can, in faith, ask whatever we wish, and we can expect God to answer. Verse 8, my Father is glorified by this when we abide in Him and His Word abides in us and we ask whatever we wish. My Father is glorified by this that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. So answered prayer comes from abiding in Christ and it's one aspect of fruit that comes for the glory of God. Now what is the glory of God? It's often described the glory of God is the outward shining of an inward reality. And that's how the Shekinah is pictured in the Old Testament. And so if we're truly glorifying God, we are reflecting in our speech, in our deeds, in our words, the very character of Jesus Christ. But when your dependence on Christ is linked to obedience, that obedience is going to be linked to prayer because you recognize without Him you can do nothing. And then you begin to show the Lord off. Just as, verse 9, just as the Father has loved me, now He's giving us the motivation for abiding, just as, just like the Father has loved me, I also have loved you. Abide in me. Again, we, we, we read verses like this, and we've read it so many times, sometimes there's a, the sense of wonder is gone. Now, I, I think, what does He not say? He doesn't say, well, I love you like a mother loves her baby. He doesn't say, well, I love you like a 
faithful husband loves his wife. No, just as the Father has loved me, I also have loved you. Well, how much did Jesus, how much does Jesus love us? As much as the Father loves us. How much does the Father love us? Endless, without measure, without beginning, without end. He loves us infinitely. And so in the high priestly prayer, when he comes to John 17, he will say it again that the Father loves you as much as he loves his Son. Now think about these guys that are here with the Lord as they're headed towards the Garden of Gethsemane. Peter, later that night, will deny him. Thomas, well, he's filled with doubts. Philip, he wants the invisible God to show himself while the visible expression of the invisible God was literally walking in their midst. Thaddeus is confused why Jesus, John 14, 22, doesn't want to show himself to the whole world. Matthew, well, he was a ripoff artist, a tax collector. Simon the Zealot, he had a set of priorities that were so contrary to the kingdom of God. James and John, the half-cousins of the Lord Jesus, called the sons of thunder, they get their mother to go, good Jewish mother, to ask Jesus, you know, we want to sit on his left side and his right side. I mean, these guys, you know, what a bunch. But Jesus loves them as much as the Father loves him. And John will later key off of this in 1 John 4 where he will say, we love him because he first loved us. And then he'll say, and this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments and his commandments are not a burden. Jesus says in verse 10, to love him is to obey him. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. So if you want to live in the sphere of the Spirit, then you have to obey. And when we obey, we experience the promise here of verse 11. Look at it. These things I have spoken to you so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be made full. Disobedience it brings sorrow. Obedience brings the fullness of joy. And we're not talking about happiness. The world can experience happiness. This is a work of the Spirit of God. A fruit of the Spirit, among others, is joy. Jesus is full of joy literally as he sweats blood in Gethsemane. The writer of the Hebrews will remind us, for the joy set before him he endured the cross, despising its shame. And God wants you to know that joy. Now, how are we going to apply this text of Scripture? Let me make three applications as we close off our time this morning. Number one, I would simply ask, is God pruning you? Is God pruning you? If He is, just remember that it can be painful. And there will be times when you feel like you're bleeding more sap than you're producing fruit. But remember, there's seasons of pruning. Just like there are seasons to change the trees, there are seasons when God changes His children. But if you're under the knife today, don't despair. Just as there is a time to be pruned, there's a time to bear fruit. The psalmist will write, and you will be like a tree firmly planted by streams of water which yields its fruit in its season. And its leaf does not wither, and in whatever he does, he'll prosper. Secondly, I would ask, are you filled with the Spirit? Are you filled with the Spirit? 
You can know that you are abiding in Christ. You can know that you're filled with the Spirit. First, if you want to be filled with the Spirit, is there an earnestness in your heart today to walk in fellowship with the Lord? Remember what Jesus said to his people in the Sermon on the Mount, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be satisfied or they will be filled, depending on your translation. If there's not an earnest desire in your heart this morning to please the Lord, maybe you've just kind of grown stale in your love for Him. You'll not be a Spirit-filled believer. If there's not a desire, He may be resident in you. You're indwelt by Him. That's called the baptism of the Spirit. But He's not present in you. He's not filling you. Here's a chart I made many, many years ago to try to distinguish the two. The baptism of the Spirit happens just once. It happens at the moment of conversion, whereas the Spirit filling our life is a repeated experience, and we saw that two weeks ago when we studied Philip, when we studied the week before that with Peter. It happens over and over and over again. Of course, the baptism of the Spirit never happened before the day of Pentecost. That's the promise of the new covenant. I baptize you with water. There's one coming after me who's going to baptize you with the Spirit. That happens the moment you believe. So it's not something that happens after your salvation. It happens the moment you believe. However, interestingly, while it never happened before Pentecost, there were instances in the Old Testament where a believer before the cross could experience for a short period of time the filling of the Spirit. So the baptism of the Spirit is true of all believers, where the filling of the Spirit is not necessarily true of all believers. Don't you wish that every single one of us this morning were filled with the Spirit? God wishes that. The baptism of the Spirit can never be undone. When I give you the Holy Spirit, I'll give Him to you forever. Again, these people who say you can lose salvation, they are just butchering the Scripture. Forever means forever. He's God's earnest, God's down payment that what He began, He will complete. Whereas the filling of the Spirit can be lost. When you're baptized by the Spirit, you are identified into the body of Christ. You are deemed a saint of God, a holy one. It results in a new position. Whereas the filling of the Spirit results in power. So Paul says in 1 Corinthians 12, 13, for by one Spirit, we're all baptized into one body. We're all made to drink of the Spirit. It's assumed to be true. That's why Paul will write in Romans, if, if you haven't had the baptism of the Spirit, you're not one of His. You're not saved. It happens the moment of conversion, Ephesians 1. You hear, you believe, you're sealed with the Spirit for the day of redemption. Whereas the filling of the Spirit, it's not always true. Remember Ephesians 5, 18, and do not get drunk with wine. For that is dissipation, it's a loss of control, but be filled with the Spirit. The comparison is clear, a drunk person with a filled person. A drunk person, his walk and his talk has changed. Even so, one who's filled with the Spirit, his walk and his talk is changed. Just as a person under the influence of alcohol acts in an unnatural way, even so a person who's filled with the Spirit acts in a supernatural way. He's able to do things that he could not do on his own. And so the Scripture gives us four commands that someone's, you know, you want to teach your children to walk in the Spirit. 
You not only want to introduce them to Christ, you want to teach them to walk in the Spirit. It's a whole lot easier to raise a Spirit-filled child than one that's not. And there are four critical commands that summarize this Spirit-filled life. One is grieve not the Spirit. How do you grieve the Spirit? You grieve the Spirit when you do those things that you shouldn't be doing. And so Paul will say in Ephesians 4 and verse 30, do not grieve the Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. The word grieve, it's, it's a love word. Your neighbor's children may bother you, but they don't grieve you. But when your children do something that you know is not right, it just grieves you. It can break your heart because you love them. And so the Spirit of God, He's not an it. He's not a thing. He's not a force. He's as much God as the Father or the Son. Don't relate to Him as a power. He's not a power. You relate to Him as a thing. You'll never see His work like He wants to do. He is grieved when we sin, and the solution is to confess. If we confess our sins, He's faithful and righteous to forgive us. The Scripture says not only to not grieve the Spirit, but don't quench the Spirit. Do not quench the Spirit, Paul will write in 1 Thessalonians 5, 19. You grieve the Spirit when you do those things you shouldn't do. You quench the Spirit when you don't do those things you ought to do. God lays on your heart, I want you to be baptized as a new believer. Nope, not going to do it. You're quenching the Spirit. God lays on your heart, I want you to share Christ with that individual. That's what they need. I mean, I've put it right in front of you, and you don't do it. You've quenched the Spirit. It's like throwing cold water on His fire. So how do you deal with quenching the Spirit? Romans 12.1, you present yourself to God as a living and holy sacrifice. God, whatever you want me to say, whatever you want me to do, whatever you want me to give, whatever you want me to go, I am totally yours, yielded. And listen, then by faith you can obey the next command to walk by the Spirit. If you're not grieving the Spirit, if you're not quenching the Spirit, then by faith you can walk in the Spirit. What does 1 John say? This is the confidence we have before Him that if we ask anything according to His will, He hears us. And if we know that He hears us and whatever we ask, we know that we have the request that we've asked from Him. So if I am in the will of God, my heart is clear in every respect, totally yielded. By faith, I can trust the Spirit of God to empower me moment by moment. But to do that consistently, we must also sow to the Spirit. Paul will say, walk by the Spirit that you might not carry out the desires of the flesh. And he will later write in the same book that we're to sow to the Spirit. How do you sow to the Spirit? What we read this morning, abide in His Word. Paul will say it in these words in Romans 12, don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed out through the renewing of your mind. The Spirit of God doesn't work in a vacuum. He works in conjunction with His Word. So, I'm just asking, are you abiding in Christ? Are you filled with the Spirit? Finally, are you a real branch or a fake branch? I can't answer that, but today's the day to answer it. Tomorrow might be too late. All true Christians bear fruit. Are you a true believer or just religious? Have you ever genuinely been born again? Has your life ever really changed? Is it bearing fruit? Then come to Jesus, and He'll receive you. Now, Father, thank You for this incredible passage of Scripture. Give us ears to hear and wills to obey. Help us to take inventory this morning. 
that if there is indeed unconfessed sin, that we might repent of it. If indeed we are quenching the Spirit because of our unwillingness to do something in the positive realm, be it singing a hymn or sharing our faith or whatever it might be, help us to present ourselves to you as a living and holy sacrifice so that by faith, knowing it's your will and notice knowing that you always answer according to your will, help us to walk by faith in the power of the Spirit as we feed on your word as a man would feed on a loaf of bread to sustain himself, you said, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. And help someone today, wherever they may be, who only professes Jesus, who've never really been born again, their life doesn't show it. Help them to repent and to believe in the Lord Jesus and his power to save. And Jesus, I ask it in your name and for your honor. Amen.